This coverage of Inspired.Legal is brought to you by Legal Talk Network, with many great podcasts to make your next commuter workout informative and educational. To improve your practice and stay in the know, visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to On the Road with Legal Talk Network. I'm Dan Linna, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. Today, we're recording from Inspire Legal 2.0 from New York Law School in New York. And I just came out of the experiential learning session, and I have a great group of guests with me who are really engaged in the last session we had. Laura Safty, John Scrutato, Jeff Carr, and Andrea Alliston. And so before we jump in and, and talk about what we did in the panel, why don't we just go around the circle here and, and just tell us a little bit about where you work and kind of what you do. So Laura, can you start things off? Absolutely, thank you for having me. My name is Laura. I'm the COO and general counsel at Case Text, a legal technology and information company. I'm a former litigator. I practiced here in New York, and I left to help found this company with a very good friend of mine, also a lawyer, but also a former engineer, because we saw firsthand as we litigated the many ways in which the tools and other supporting infrastructure that we were dealing with as litigators didn't necessarily support us doing our best work and certainly didn't support the best outcomes for our clients. Okay, John. Hi, John Stradato. I'm an innovation technology solutions attorney at Latham & Watkins here in New York. Uh, my role is a bit of consulting, a little bit of development, a little bit of procurement. I work with our practice groups, I work with our outside vendors, and I try to identify ways to deploy technology within the firm as well as keep an eye on what's happening and uh, make sure that we're always on top of the best that uh, tech has to offer. Great. Jeff. I'm Jeff Carr. Until November last year, I was the general counsel of Univar. I'm still on the payroll there, but I'm re-retiring as of March 1. Spent about 35 years in, ho- 35 years in legal practice and about 25 of that in-house. Thank you, Jeff. Andrea. Andrea Alston. So I'm from Stegman Elliott uh, in Toronto. I'm a partner there, and I'm responsible for our knowledge management, innovation, and education. Great. Well, it was a really engaging session. I hope you'd agree with me. And, and, and each of you was engaged in the session. Jeff, you pointed out that we were having all these interesting discussions, but yet you were the only customer in the room. Can you tell us a little bit more about your observation there and why that's important? Well, I thought it was fascinating that we were talking about how do we train lawyers, legal professionals for legal service in the future. In fact, I think one of Laura's Laura's points was so compelling about about the future, not training them for today, but the future practice. But I was amazed that there literally were no customers in the room, Um, at least the way I would think of a customer. I'm kind of the ultimate customer, the buyer of legal services. And I just found that fascinating because what I've found in my many years of in-house practice, and I made this statement during the session, is that the legal supply chain has failed me, both in terms of producing the kinds of lawyers and legal professionals that I need for the kind of department that I run, and the law firms and legal service providers in the service offerings that they provide to me. And so it's fascinating that, what are we training for? What's our objective? And I would submit the objective ought to be for customer service. That seemed to be lacking. Yeah. Well, and you alluded to Laura's take on kind of where we're going with technology. Could you tell us a little bit about your perspective on, on some of what we should be thinking about as far as the role technology is playing in the legal industry and, and how that, what that says for how we should be training lawyers? Sure. So I come from the perspective of a technology developer, you know, one that's run by lawyers for lawyers, but at the end of the day, we're, we're deep in the development of, of this technology. And 
one the the prompt at the at the session was you know what skills gaps are there in the future of the profession that that we need to address head on and the one that really struck me is that new lawyers seem and really current lawyers seem wholly unprepared for the fundamental changes that are going to be happening in the practice of law particularly ones that are going to be driven by automation of tasks that we currently consider to be core human substantive experience focused tasks so many of those are being automated today will be automated in the next 5 or 10 years and like speaking concretely a lot of elements of contract review have already been automated but imagine what it'll mean for the practice of law for litigators when substantive motion briefing is automated when you can choose from a list i want to make this argument and this argument support it with this precedent here's how i get the cases that support my claim all of that's considered highly substantive work and yet because of some really exciting developments in technology a large portion of that is going to be automated so my big question is what's left then for lawyers I still think there's an incredibly critical role for lawyers, but how much of that is going to be assembling the building blocks versus that core part, that intelligence, that persuasion, those analytical skills that really may only be 5 or 10% of the average litigator's job right now. That may be all that's left in the profession. And is that good or bad or how are we prepared? Yeah. Well, it was really refreshing to hear you say that because one of my frustrations over the last couple of years is I I think we there was all this robots practicing law and I think we swung too far the other way. And frankly, I think it's a lot of vendors driving this discussion. They're like, Agreed. "Oh, I created something to replace this." Oh, but don't worry, the future is humans plus machines. And of course, we eat that up as lawyers. That's right. Human I mean, us plus the machines, right? It's like, "Well, wait a second. There's a disconnect. Like, how do we get to the creating that future of the human plus machine?" I mean, what kind of discussions and things do you think we ought to be doing right now? This is going to be an unsatisfactory answer because uh-huh. I do think the answer is humans plus machines but in a potentially different way than people have been talking about it. Discussions around AI and automation have been plagued by hype, right? Like mm-hmm. it's going to replace all lawyers mm-hmm. and then there's been this rejection of the hype. But like let's speak concretely. What tasks make up legal practice? Let's break that down. And which of those tasks can be automated today? Which can be automated in 5 years, in 10 years? and then how do we respond to that because at the end of the day i don't believe in my lifetime law firms will disappear or lawyers will disappear mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the right. skills that i learned at law school are still skills that can never be done by a machine but really that when i was a litigator that was maybe only 20% of what i did so much of what i did was assembling building blocks of arguments things that soon you won't need to do as a lawyer and so i'd love to think my my aspiration is that i as a litigator could spend 90 or 100% of my time interfacing with my client, internalizing their business objectives, using the highest value analytical skills that I bring to the table as opposed to the stuff that I didn't really love doing practicing. So I don't think this should be a doomsday type of conversation. It's just something we have to have honestly now because our law students and even current lawyers prepared for that new reality. Well, and I think John spoke to something that's related to that. And John, you you can kind of maybe tra- channel a little bit also that you're not too far removed from the law school experience and you talked about your experience uh, taking an operations class and and can you tell us a little bit about kind of that role and how you see that informing what you think about what you think experiential learning ought to look like? Sure, absolutely. I I think it's really important that education provides the context for why we do things. and i think particularly in this vein of discussing the future of the legal industry it's important that it inculcates a desire to be a lifelong learner and as part of that to understand how new pieces and new building blocks can be used to practice law in a new way 
so this class I took when I was an operations student at the Tauber Institute at the University of Michigan, we actually did a, a mock assembly line, basically. So we basically project managed producing a widget, and we used a bunch of post-it notes and basically planned out what it would take to actually make something. And then we competed against a team that just tried to make it. And unsurprisingly, the team that planned ahead was so much more successful, and it really impressed upon me. It's actually one of the reasons that I, I went into legal technology, how impactful it is if you can effectively manage and plan the operations and what you're trying to do with technology. So I think it's really important that law schools uh -huh. produce law students who think, all right, here are these building blocks that are evolving, that are changing. How do I combine those to also take my legal knowledge and deliver it in ways that people want and in forms that people need? So there was some interesting conversation about that. And in some ways, it was framed maybe as learning about business. One of the things that I think is interesting is there seemed to be a suggestion that if you go into legal aid, that maybe you don't need those kind of skills. But of course, if you're running a legal aid organization, you, it's Absolutely. maybe even more important. It's still these operations, and you have limited resources, and how do you best deploy them? Yeah, I think the access to justice element is really relevant, right? There's all this talk about the inability of a lot of people to get access to legal advice. And one solution for that is delivering it more efficiently and using technology in new ways to do it. So Andrea, there were a handful of folks, kind of like you, who have something to do with hiring and, and law firms. It's great to have folks like you here to be part of this conversation. What would you say are the, well, even while we were sitting in that session, there was a conversation going on on Twitter that, well, law schools shouldn't teach these things because the law firms don't value them and they're not hiring because of them. And I think that's wrong and I think things are changing. How might you describe the way that, from an employer perspective, do you see value in the things we're talking about? Absolutely. I think John mentioned and used the words intellectual curiosity, which is like kind of maybe a different way to frame lifelong learning. Mm. And that's what I think we need. I need somebody who, or want somebody who is intellectually curious about the law. I do think the law schools, it's one of the opportunities you have to actually take time to think and understand about the law in a deeper way than most practitioners do once they get into a law firm or a working environment. But once you have that intellectual curiosity about it, you're always pushing the envelope to understand why and the legal reasoning behind so you can then turn it into the business judgment that Jeff is looking for. And I think that applies, that intellectual curiosity, once you have it, then you start thinking about the legal technology and you have intellectual curiosity about that. You have intellectual curiosity about your client, your customer, their business. And so I think that type of mindset actually would serve our students very well throughout their career and would address a number of these challenges. I think it's, it's fascinating because intellectual curiosity is great, but what I find is our legal service delivery system is too focused on interesting questions of law. I actually don't care very much about interesting questions of law because I don't have legal questions. I have business questions. I have business problems. And I find so often that my supply chain, my legal service delivery platform, focuses way too much on, wow, this is really cool. This is really interesting. I don't really care. Um, you know, I want an answer to my business problem. But it's, it, and it's, so it's really, how do you juxtapose that business need, customer need, with the intellectual curiosity? It's, it's flanging those together, I think, right. that is the challenge. Which I think is an evolution through your career, right? So as you start out as a more junior lawyer, the things you are curious about and interested in might be different, slightly, than those you are interested in as you move through your career. Yeah. Like, uh, as a junior lawyer, you know, your interactions with the client are a bit more circumspect. Yeah. 
But as you move up, in a law firm at least, you start really interacting with your customers, your clients. And if you're telling me about your business and I get curious about that, I'm going to ask many uh, more questions. Yeah. I'm, going to, I, I'm just interested in everything around me. And so with that, I then actually develop the skills and plug those gaps and it probably sets me up to deal with newer things. And so if I'm like John and I opt out in second year and I'm like, I love that tech stuff. I'm going to do that for the rest of my career. I think that having an open mind and that curiosity sets you up for those options. Well, another thing that came out during our discussion is, is a lot of times here in the U.S., we're not familiar with what's going on in Canada, and we'll say like, oh, well, we should do kind of like what the medical profession does, right, and have these, uh, you know, internships, things like that. In Canada, you have, you have articling, and right. what would be your observation in Canada as far as what does that add to the experiential learning component? Right, so I think what it adds is that freedom, sorry, freedom, I come back to that. So just for people who don't know, articling is basically a year of apprenticeship that a student out of law school will do in a law firm, a government environment. Um, there's many kind of ways you can do your articling, but it is required to be certified to become a lawyer in each of the jurisdictions in Canada. And I think what it does is it's a, it's a wonderful way to bridge that gap between your academic learning as a law student and then the practice of law. So you're often given the opportunity to be exposed to many different practice areas within the organization that you're working in. There are certain things that we as lawyers, if we take on apprentices, need to make sure that they get exposure to during the articling year. And I think, again, that allows you as a student to have that year to make a choice about what you're going to do. We've had students who, I mean, they're now partners at the firm. We've had students who opted out after their articling year. They decided, I do not want to become a lawyer at Steichman Elliott. I would like to go to a tech startup. We've had students who've left Canada, come down to New York to work at a big New York firm. So it provides them with that exposure into practice to allow them with those choices. And again, as a student, part of the big component of the year is education and training on all of the basic elements that we feel make a lawyer successful at the firm in those different practice areas. So Jeff, you've been involved in this conversation for a long time now, and, and there, were, there was quite a divergence of, of views in the room, but thinking from, I mean, what we've been talking a lot is that the clients are driving a lot of the change that we're seeing, and there, there, are, there are quite a few, there are a few other clients here today at least, but what did you hear in the room that made you think like, okay, we're getting to the right questions to be asking here, and that can actually help us move forward? There was a great discussion about the future of practice, and there was a great discussion about getting people more fit for purpose. And so that was helpful. But I still I went away with the question Laura was posing was not answered, in my view, which was, it's, it's not future-proofing, it's adaptation. It's, it's recognizing that the delivery of legal services will fundamentally change. And so how do we prepare people for their roles within those those systems. And, and traditionally what we've had are lawyers, really, you know, whether they're junior, senior, partner, articling, you know, whatever it may be, using brute force to do activities. And, and the first part of the future is taking those activities and having them done by someone or something else. The next wave of change is, is, in my view, it's what I call the fourth wave of change. And that's the elimination of those tasks entirely. 
You know, the, the objective of every company, as an example, should be to have no disputes. Mm -hmm. Not to be really good at resolving disputes, it should be to never have a dispute. Um, it's kind of like safety, you should never have accidents. You, know, you want your people to go home safely. So the future, how do we prepare practitioners, whether they're lawyers or not lawyers, to play in that environment, recognizing what the customer actually wants and needs is counseling, not advocacy. It's outcomes, not activity. How do we change that dynamic in the way that we're training people? How do we change the business structure of firms and how we compensate and reward people? Those, to me, are the big challenges. And they're, you know, we're nibbling around the edges, and we have been, I, I, absolutely no doubt, you're right, Dan, I've been doing this way, 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 way too long. <laughs> and, you know, I'm frustrated personally with the pace of change and, and the results that have occurred. But when I reflect, it's a lot different today than it was in 1998. 1978, when I first, you know, kind of got in, involved in this stuff, much different than it was in 2008. So yeah, change is occurring, but there's, we got a long way to go. I love the adage that law school doesn't teach you law, it teaches you how to ask legal questions. Yeah. But I think the challenge we were discussing today, if I was going to boil it down, is can law school or legal education in general teach me how to adapt in a world, a legal world and a legal profession that is and will be fundamentally changing. Right. And what we're seeing at Case Text is clients are really beginning to drive this change. So it doesn't matter at the end of the day that today the billable hour is the dominant structure. Clients are moving off of that. And law firms that are forward-looking are responding in kind and jumping at the kind of technology that we're building because they see it's the only way to survive and thrive, not just today, but in 10 years. Absolutely right. I think that's also ties in the point of teaching law students to be nimble. And to, Dan, to Dan's point earlier, at some point there was a lot more hype about certain technologies than there is today, and perhaps we swung too far in the other direction. And I think the future is uncertain, right? We're not sure how legal technology is going to unfold. We're not sure what the specific impact is, although I think everyone here probably agrees that there will be an impact and we all have different hopes and thoughts on how that might unfold. The important thing is that a law student you know, and combining that, that legal knowledge they have is also able to see that change and adapt to it as it happens. Because none of us, frankly, at least I don't think, none of us know what it's going to look like. Well, to that point, right, why do we give so much agency to technology, right? Why are we letting technology drive things? We all sitting here, why aren't we defining what the, the profession, what legal systems, what legal institutions, what the rule of law should look like in a digital society? Why aren't we defining that and laying that out and creating the future rather than just sitting here and saying, these things are all going to happen to us and who knows what's going to happen to us? Because it's easier to adopt and use tech than it is to change our culture. <laughs> That's yeah, well, so that, that's critical, right? And I guess I would challenge all of us too, right? I mean, you know, I really believe in the proactive law and the preventive law, but no one's buying what we're selling for the most part, right? So how do we, I mean, maybe sometimes I think that we're not doing enough about like from a meta perspective, like we talk about design thinking and empathy and stuff. Well, we need to have a little more empathy maybe for the people who we're trying to get to change and think about how do we really get people to come together and see that this is what's best for the profession, for other professions that are part of this, for society generally. And I don't know if anyone has any thoughts. I mean, this is maybe a start to doing that, this, this event here, the conversations we had today. Anyone have any thoughts on that? I don't think we need to do all that much because the profession is changing, the market is changing. And so either you're leading that change, you're getting ahead of it, or you're behind. I think if you want to be ahead, you're going to get ahead. All right, well, we've come to the end of our time here for this episode, and I, wa I want to thank each of our guests, uh, Laura Safdie, John Scardato, 
Jeff Carr, Andrea Alliston. Before we close, though, if you could just tell our guests how they can reach you. If you're on Twitter, email handle, whatever's the best way. Laura? I'm Twitter, at uh, LSafty. All right. John? I very rarely use it, but uh, Twitter, at John Scordato. John, I thought you were a real legal innovator. Come on now. Okay. Jeff? Twitter, I'm at uh, CarNext. Okay. Andrea? Uh, Twitter, I'm at Andrea Alliston. All right. Okay, everyone on Twitter, what a great panel. Thank you for joining us. So also, I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dan Linna. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Uh-huh.